big deal. All right, well, turn with me now, if you would, in your Bibles to John chapter 3. No, we're not going to do 3 again, but we are going to touch back into chapter 3 as uh, we've been following Jesus, uh, his interactions with some different people. And in, in, in John chapter 3, verse 8, he says something that I think fits well with where we're at now in chapter 4 related to speaking to the, uh, the woman at the well from Samaria and then the people from her village as we continue on from there. But if you remember in chapter 3, Jesus was having an interaction with a man named Nicodemus who was one of the top religious leaders, top teachers in all of Israel. And he was helping him to understand the very basics of why he was here. And he was explaining to him, he needed to consider the fact that what he needed was a whole new start, that he needed to have a spiritual rebirth. And and he needed the Holy Spirit actually within him, which is where Jesus was willing to take him in time. And in explaining that, in verse 8, Jesus said, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And as I got to thinking about Jesus' interaction with this woman from Samaria, but you know, that's certainly a whole lot like, well, the Holy Spirit takes you places and you don't know where he's headed, where you're going with him, but it's good to follow even though you can't see what he's doing. And that's really what, what, what happened here is Jesus, if you remember, decided to head north, to back to Galilee, because in Judea his ministry had begun to attract enough attention that he was probably on, on a course for a big conflict with the Pharisees, with the religious teachers. And he didn't have a problem with conflict with the religious leaders. In fact, he will initiate quite a few in the course of his ministry. But he was so sensitive to God's timing, the Father's timing of when things would happen, that it was now time to withdraw from Judea, let them digest what he's done down there, and head back to Galilee and continue the ministry that he'd started in Galilee. And so they head back to Galilee, and and remember last week we saw it said that he had to go through Samaria. And we understood he didn't have to. There was a route that went around Samaria, and, and a lot of, uh, of, of Jews would take that route, even though it was longer to avoid Samaria because of that, uh, that issue of the, the, the disagreement that had been going on for centuries between those who were, who were Jewish and those who were the Samaritans, who were part Jewish and not, had married into people from other nations during the exile period. But Jesus had to go through. Why? Well, because the Holy Spirit was leading him there. It was his Father's will that he go through Samaria. And we saw that interaction as he sat down at a well, and it says he was tired, he was weary, and along came a woman, right? A woman from Samaria by herself to draw water. And as we surmised last week, she was by herself probably because of her background. Uh, the other women didn't really want anything to do with her because as Jesus lays out for her, 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 her heart and soul for her as they 
have their interaction. She's a woman who has been married five times. And now she's living with a man that is not her husband. And you can understand in a small town how that might cause a little bit of trouble with the population, especially of the women of the, of the village, of the town. And so what, a, what an interesting place to end up. And yet this is where Jesus needed to be because it was his father's will for him to be there and to talk to this woman who was someone that most Jewish people would say, I'm not going to interact with a Samaritan. But then especially a Samaritan woman, and even more especially a Samaritan woman who has this kind of a background, this kind of a reputation, and yet Jesus welcomes her into a conversation by putting himself, in a sense, in her debt. He asked her for some water. He had nothing to to dip out of the well with. But she did. And she was shocked, remember? She said, how is it that you, being a a Jew, ask me for a drink? Put yourself in that place with me. Remember how Jesus then leads her along, takes her from, well, yes, I need water. But if you knew who I was, and if you knew what the gift of God was for you, life eternal, you would ask me and I would give you living water. And now he has to work her through that whole process of, was this talking about physical water so I won't have to come to the well anymore? I was like, no. It's a matter of real life that comes from the one who had come as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the one who came to Give life that, that isn't just temporary life. But you receive this life from him, and it becomes in you a fountain bubbling up within you that never ends. And remember then they have, they have a little bit of a, of a theological discussion about, well, where should you worship? Should you worship here on, on this mountain in Samaria? Or should you worship at Jerusalem, where the temple is there? And Jesus brings around, remember, those who worship must worship how? In spirit and in truth. Yes, God gave the temple for a period of time to point ahead to the Messiah. But there's going to be a time, it doesn't matter that you go there, but that you worship in spirit, from the heart, the one true God. Because he is spirit. He is everywhere. You don't have to be in a particular location to be where he is but you can worship him in every place. And then remember she says, I think you're a prophet. And then she says, it's just that progression, right? She goes from you're a Jew to sir to, oh, I think you're a prophet to, sir, I know that when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all things to us. And we stopped at the point where Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Or or maybe more literally, the one speaking to you, I am. He takes that name of God given in the Old Testament and applies it to himself for the first time in John's Gospel. And he'll do that more times as we move along. But who who does he reveal himself with those words to first? Well, the least likely person by human standards. The least sought after person by human standards. And yet Jesus told her, the Father is seeking people who worship in spirit and in truth to be his worshipers. 
He applies it directly to her. The Father is seeking you. That brings us to verse 27, where we are this morning. And in the mid, right as that's being said, all of his disciples show back up. So follow along with me, if you will, as I read uh, verses 27. And actually, we're only going to verse 42. So thing, my plans changed from the time I, was, I started the outline until to where we're at. So we'll go to 42. At this point, his disciples came. And they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see, come see a man who told me all the things I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and, and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did they? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you ha have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. From that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So Jesus makes this great revelation to the woman, right? And right then, this, the, his disciples end up coming back. They remember, they'd gone into to the city, into the village to, to get food. And it's this big transition where all of a sudden they show up, and here she is with 13 men. She says, time for me to go. But there's been an impact on her heart, right? And she makes a quick return, according to verse 27, or verse 28, she left her water pot, went into the city, and began to talk to people. Disciples, they're a little shocked, right? They're like, why are you talking? Interesting what John says here. Why are you talking? Why is he talking to this woman? They didn't ask her, what, what do you want? They didn't ask Jesus, why are you talking to her? But, but within them, and maybe amongst themselves, they're saying, what's Jesus doing here? Notice the emphasis on it being a woman. Didn't say, why are you talking to a Samaritan? Why are you talking to a woman? Isn't it interesting that uh, the, uh, especially amongst the Pharisees, amongst the teachers of the time, um, they really were, the, the customs of the day were strongly biased against women. 
and especially for a, a rabbi to be speaking to a, a woman. Some of the sayings and things that they had about speaking to a woman is, as though it was a waste of your time, or even it was wrong to do that. You're, you should be doing something of more value. And so the disciples maybe were aware of some of those, those thoughts that some of the rabbis had about women, and they're, they're, they're trying to process. Here's these people we respect, these rabbis, what they've said, but Jesus is doing something totally different in public, right here by the well. He is engaged in this conversation with a woman. Probably started to change some of their attitudes, some of their thoughts, some of the way they viewed women, which, of course, is they, they were totally wrong in those ideas that they had. But the Spirit led differently than what they were thinking, right? Sometimes you don't know where the Spirit's going to lead, just like you don't know where the wind's going to blow from or where it's going to blow to. And so Jesus here is not only ministering to this woman, but he's shaping the hearts and minds of his disciples. He's shaking up some of the, the wrong assumptions that they'd been taught and they had made over the years. So the woman, she makes a quick exit, right, with the, the, the arrival of the disciples. Maybe she even leaves her water pot. That tells you that there's been a, a change of priorities. Remember her, just before this, she's like, boy, give me living water, then I don't have to keep coming back every day, day after day, to get water from the well. Now she's like, water pot, what water pot? I've got to go tell the people I know about this man. I've got to go let them know who I've met, right? So she, she even leaves behind her means of getting water. And I'm thinking if she had lost that pot, she probably would have been a serious problem for her to, to go buy another one, to get a, get a hold of another one. But she doesn't care anymore. She goes and she to tell the people that she uncomfortably lives with what had happened. And she comes into the, into the city with a bold statement that must have caught at least some of them by surprise. This woman who went to the well by herself now is, is pressing herself into interaction with them, saying, come and see this man who's told me everything I've done. Now, for some of those people, they're probably a little worried about what he told her because they probably had some, some background, some things they'd probably rather not be known, just considering the background that she had, all the things that she had been through. That probably would have gotten their attention, She's a wise witness. She, she really only tells what she really knows. She says, he came and, and though we don't know him, though we've never seen him in our town before, he knew me. He knew my life. He could tell me that, no, I wasn't married, but in fact, I'd been married multiple times and, and I was living with someone. She didn't have to say that. The people already knew her history. But she throws that out, gets their attention, and then very wisely, she, she doesn't tell them, I've found the Messiah. She tells them, I found this man. He's told me what I've done. This couldn't be the Messiah, could it? She says it in such a way as to, it kind of expects a negative answer. Now, help, me, help me out here. I, I don't think that this wouldn't be the Messiah, would it? Because if she'd come into town saying, as, as a person of her background and the things that, that, that had happened in her life with the people that she's with, she'd have come, hey, everyone, I have found the Messiah, and you have to come and see him. 
how do you think that would have been received? Probably wouldn't have been received very well at all. They'd have said, who are you to make a judgment about who the Messiah is? How would you know who the Messiah is? And so she very wisely leaves it up to them to decide. She very wisely kind of just piques their attention so that they will come. And so now the people are motivated to go and check out this person for themselves. Their interest was piqued, and they head out of town. In fact, it sounds as though there are actually crowds of people head toward the the well. And, And I think we can learn a lesson from the Samaritan woman, that we need to do things that encourage people to listen. Encourage people to read about Jesus, to study for themselves, to seek out answers in the scripture. Ask questions that make them say, huh, I've never thought about that before, but I think I want to look more. Because as Jesus told the woman, God is seeking worshipers, right? Well, if he's seeking them, can we pique their interest? And if they go looking for him, He can find them. He never lost them, right? He knows where they are. And so I I think it's really good to remember that we can do things that just encourages people's interest in Jesus. And then they will go and seek after him because he is actively working. And the Spirit is doing things that we don't understand or see, right? That's great encouragement to me. Encouragement to... Say, hey, have you ever thought about Jesus? Maybe you should. Let's talk about this another time, if that's what's appropriate for the situation. Why don't you go and read your Bible? And so she gets things rolling, right? God uses her to get this crowd coming down out of town toward where where the well is. And then John switches the scene, right? We've been up in the village. With, with this woman and all the people, the Samaritan people there. Now he goes back, well, what happened when she left? Well, we go to verse 31. It says, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Jesus, saying, Rabbi, eat. And we have the disciples who are, in a sense, kind of back in their mindset where the woman was. They're focused on the physical. Now, they had gone to eat, gone to get food. That was important. They needed food to eat. Jesus, where we're told at the beginning of the account, said said he was weary, and he sat down at the well. Certainly he would have been hungry. But it's kind of an interesting thing is that they come back, and they they are trying to take care of Jesus. Nothing wrong with that, but as they urge him to eat, there's a word, the word that's translated urge there, has the idea of, of an equal talking to, an, to someone else, to someone they think is on the same level as them. They're going to take care of Jesus because he doesn't know better by not eating. And good motives, they want to take care of him, they want to make sure he gets something to eat, but he wants to instead draw them after himself to the things that are truly important. They've got their mind on the physical needs, but are oblivious to the spiritual needs all around them. I don't know if you can be that way. I find it easy to be that way. You know, I get on a mission. You know, well, I've got to go to the store, and I've got to get these things, I'll hunt them, you know. And maybe there's somebody, the reason I'm there 
from God's perspective is there's a conversation I need to have with somebody. There's somebody I need to at least say hello to and encourage them in some way, you know. Or, you know, you go out and, and you have a task. And I don't maybe that's more of a guy thing. Uh, but I get focused on the task. I forget about the people. But sometimes God has appointments for us along the way. The Holy Spirit's directing. The wind is blowing where we don't realize it. And so I think we need to remember that. Because the disciples were a bit like that right now. Their focus was, we were supposed to go get food. We're supposed to bring the food back. Jesus is supposed to eat the food. So then everything's taken care of that way. Ignoring the spiritual. Now that was a tendency that they had that maybe you have too. But the Gospels show us all kinds of early problems in, in the disciples' lives, right? It's not shy about pointing out where the disciples fall short and don't understand things. But the, the great exciting thing about that is, is they became Jesus' apostles. That after his re resurrection and ascension, they were sent out into the world and they actually got the church started, which spread all over the world. God used them. He changed them. He made them sensitive to what, where the Spirit was guiding them and to the mission that they had of taking the gospel to all the nations. And so that should be encouraging to us, shouldn't it? Even if we tend to be a little bit uh, you know, not focused on the things that God is doing, doesn't mean he can't change us. Doesn't mean he can't you know, give us a nudge or hit us up alongside the head, depending on which it is we need, right? So that we too can be used in those moments when we're not so interested in those kind of things. And as he, as he works with them then, in verse 32, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Well, in the midst of their, their attention toward the food, they're like, what? What? Did anybody bring him food? Did you bring Nobody slipped back here and brought him food, did they? Their, their focus is still on the physical, right? And I don't know about you, but do you, how often do you forget to eat? I don't forget to eat very often. You know, most of us don't. But there are times when we get so wrapped up in something, we're so focused on it, we're so eager to, to finish something up or just to participate in something that we do forget to eat, right? There are times when that happens. And God simply sustains you, right? Keeps you going. You're, you're able to keep going. But the point here is, is really that Jesus wanted to get their minds, like he took the woman's mind, off the physical and onto the spiritual. Because eating, eating and caring for your body, that's important, right? We should do that. That's part of our stewardship. But there are far more important things. And Jesus wants these men to, to get their mind there, to be thinking about, well, what? really does fuel you? What really does sustain you? Is it the food you're going to have for dinner, for lunch, for breakfast? Jesus wants them to know that there's more to life than just eating, right? In fact, Jesus is already quoted from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, right? Let's go ahead and take a look back there. When he was tempted by the devil... Remember, the devil came, and he'd been fasting. He was truly, really hungry. And, this, and Satan comes along and says, well, you know, why don't you just use some of your divine power here in order to help you, to get you some food? You're really hungry. And Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He says, 
speaking, God is speaking to the Israelites, says, He humbled you. Or, or Moses is talking about God. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. God gives you what you really, truly need, doesn't he? And yes, he can, he can bring bread out of the sky for you like he did for the Israelites, right? But what really sustains you should be all of the words that he has given us. we got a huge book full of them, don't we? And we have his spirit to direct us into those words and change us and, and move us into the things that he wants us to be doing. Jesus wants them to shift their thinking away from just the physical and to think, oh, what really matters, what really sustains me is God. And he sustains me physically by providing me with food, but he sustains me at the heart of who I am by speaking to me through his word, directing me by his spirit. That's what kept Jesus going not just his word, but the word, the will of God that he knew. Verse 34, as he explains to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what drove Jesus. That's what kept him going. He knew that's why he was here. Talking to this woman was the desire of the Father for Jesus. That's basically what he said here. It was God's will that I speak to this woman. He, the Spirit directed me here. And here the Son, cooperating perfectly with the Father, does that. And he says, and that's what fueled him. That's what motivated him. Because everything that the Father wanted, of course, was Jesus' goal, right? The different members of the Trinity working in perfect harmony. And it excited him. Sometimes we live to eat. Jesus knew that he was on the earth to save People, as we saw back in chapter 3. In his humanity, he lived to do this for the glory of the Father. He had a much greater purpose than just keeping food coming into his body. He wanted to do what his Father wanted done. And now he takes them, he's kind of gone over that gap. He wants to take them a little bit further. He points them now to the physical things around them. Uh, the fields, verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. He says, you know the, the normal process of things. Just look around us. We have grain fields. We have wheat fields out there, right? You know in the normal course of things, it'll be, a, you know, it takes about four months from planting until you get the the result of the planting. And it might have been planting time right then. We don't know. Maybe the, maybe the grain was already growing up. But it was a great example all around them that well, there's a normal course of things for reaping, for, for having the end show up. It takes some time. You plant. When you wait a given amount of time, you notice that it looks ready. Then you harvest, right? But Jesus points out that God might have different timetables for spiritual harvesting. And so you need to be listening to the Lord of the harvest, right? 
the one who is in charge of it all. And he says to, to them, you know, the fields may not look like they're ready to harvest, but look. And I think he pointed to the people who were coming down out of the city to see him. And a lot of the commentators mentioned that they were likely dressed in white. He was saying, look, the fields, white, ready for the harvest. Not like all these green fields around us. But pay attention and look. Change the, your, your thought processes. And the word he uses for look isn't just, you know, see something with your eyes, but look at, at it and contemplate these people who are coming toward us. Who are they to God? Therefore, who should they be to you? What is it that God wants you to see in these people who are coming? He says, I would say the harvest's here. The harvest is ready, and it's time for you to get busy. You need new eyes. You need new priorities. And something's about to happen, and you should get ready for your part in what God has prepared for you to do. Pretty quick change for them in thought, right? Like, oh, wow, what's going on here? Jesus is telling us, we're about to get busy harvesting. Jesus goes on, he says, understand, you're, you're thinking of these, these Samaritan people in your box. They're a group of people who aren't 100% Jewish. There are people who only accept the first five books of the scriptures that you know. There are people who built their own temple in competition with the temple in Jerusalem. There are people that you see as unclean. There are people you see as unapproachable, to be avoided. You see them as your enemies. Um, you've even had, there's been physical conflict between the, the Jewish people and the Samaritans. That's the box you've put them in. I want you to instead see them as people that God has prepared to repent and turn to him. He says, there's a cooperative process that's gone on. Just because you didn't take these people from where they were to the point of being ready to believe in me doesn't mean God hasn't been at work. Others have already been planting, he says. Who's been planting? Well, for one thing, John the Baptist may have been in this area. He moved up and down the area along the Jordan. Might not have been all that far, and some of these people might have been some of the people who went and saw him and heard his call, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Get ready for the Messiah is going to be here. What God's been preparing us for, it's coming. Of course, Jesus has been sowing, right? He's been speaking to this woman. He's been getting her mind to consider spiritual things rather than just physical things. He got her mind on the fact that she was a sinner in need of having her sins forgiven. Right? And so Jesus has been doing some planting, and that's probably one of the reasons he's saying, you know, the time from planting to harvesting doesn't always take so long. I've just been planting, get ready. The harvest might already be coming. In fact, Jesus knew it was. And even more interesting, the woman herself has been doing some planting, hasn't she? She didn't know a lot, but she'd been planting the truths that Jesus had given to her in the hearts and minds of her fellow citizens. And getting them ready to say, hey, wait a minute, maybe the Messiah really is here. 
maybe this really is what we've been waiting for. Even though what we expect and what the Jews have been expecting are different things, well, what does God have? So the planting has been happening, right? And so the, the, the disciples, Jesus says, I'm going to send you in to reap what you haven't sown. They get to harvest fruit that really matters. They get to be part of people beginning to believe in Jesus. Jesus calls it gathering fruit for eternal life. And so they get to enter into the work that others have initiated and get to see the benefits. And so it's then going to be their privilege and a rejoicing that can be shared with those who started the process. And it might be that Jesus says, I sent you to reap. Oh, maybe they missed it. Maybe when they went into town to buy the food, maybe they should have been a little bit more keyed in to why they were there. You know, you know, you got 12 men going to buy lunch. Was it only to get the food? Couldn't one or two of them have done that? Maybe Jesus wanted them to have an impact in the city of Sychar. And... Did they, did they catch on? doesn't seem like it. And I know about, again, I, I often forget. Do you often forget? Sometimes Jesus sends you places, and he's got more for you to do than just run errands. Yeah. But Jesus' heart was for the people that he saw. And more than once, he said, pray. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send harvesters into the field. Let's just look at nine, Matthew 9. 37 and 38, where one of the places where he says that. <clears throat> let's, let's just even back up a little bit to verse 35. Matthew 9, 35 through 38. There it says, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Ah, people who were prepared to be shepherded, right? Because they'd been without a shepherd. Verse 37, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus had that thought on his mind because he had come to seek and to save the lost, right? He had come in order to be the one who made it possible to bring people to salvation. You know, and he says to pray. I think that that call comes for us as well, right? To pray God would put more harvesters into the field. But it's a prayer that, that comes with a certain amount of uh, something might happen in your life because you are one of the harvesters, right? And sometimes that can be fearful, but this, this passage ought to encourage us. Jesus has been preparing the way, right? You know, and, and sometimes we need to pray that there would be other people put into the lives of unbelievers we know. I would guess in this group, there's a lot of you who are praying for family members, praying for friends, for neighbors, for enemies that don't know Jesus, right? 
Do you pray that God would put other people in their lives besides you who could speak the gospel truth, who could live out Christ in front of them? I think that's part of what's going on here as well. You need to be praying that God would be placing in his sovereign love for them people who will point out that they're sinners. They might hear that better from another person than from you, especially if they're family, to be honest. Pray that God would keep doing that, that God would prompt them, put the truth in front of them in the form of a book or a podcast or a radio uh, show, whatever it is he chooses, that there would be those harvesters out there. And maybe you will be that person in the life of another unbeliever. You don't know what the Spirit is doing in the lives of people you encounter. Maybe the person you encounter is, has someone who's been praying for them for years and wondering, will God ever bring them to salvation? You might be the one who gets to speak the gospel to them and they'll understand it really for the first time, even though maybe they've heard it from someone else over and over. Maybe you will be the one who's sharing your life with them. You will live out the gospel in a way that will make it make sense to them as the Holy Spirit works in their lives. Maybe you will get to be the person who reaps what someone else has been sowing. It's a cooperative effort. Uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul explains the exact same thing to the Corinthians and what has happened in, the, in their midst. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. And he speaks about various people along with himself who have been in, had an impact on their lives. He says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and who water are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. It's a work together. And then John takes us to the people again. John chapter 4, verse 39 as we wrap up this encounter, it says, from the city, from that city of, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word the woman, of the woman who testified. He told me all things that I have done. And so there was a reaping. Some who put their trust in Jesus because of what she had to say. They said, wow, what a, what a, a truth that he could tell you those things. He must be the Messiah. We should trust him for our future and what it is he has in store for us. And even though her testimony was simple, she was that trigger that God used to bring them to believing in him. And they became those who believed God and it was reckoned to them as righteousness, right? Just like Abraham. Then they, it says they stayed. Jesus' disciples stayed in the city of Samaria with them for two days. This was huge. This was a breaking down of barriers, a breaking down of, of biases and prejudices. 
setting those aside, trying to ignore them on the part of the disciples, right? And I'm thinking, they probably were thinking, I can't believe we're doing this. I can't believe we're staying here in the homes of these Samaritans, eating their food, interacting with them on such a close level. Boy, the things that this Jesus does, they're different. And this is early on in Jesus' ministry. So they're, they're just figuring these things out. Then it also says, after that, verse 41, many more believed because of his word. When they heard Jesus for himself, then they were convinced. Then they realized, yes, this is the one who has come, according to the prophecies, in order to come and to to save the life of those who have sinned. The woman's testimony started the process. Then they went and they heard Jesus for themselves. And what a blessing if we can be used that way, right? If we can just get people to go and listen to Jesus' words for themselves, then they believe we rejoice all the more, right? And verse 42 shows us just how far they went. It says, And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. It's a pretty amazing thing that they would say this Jewish rabbi was the Savior of the world. And that they were the first ones really to say that. I mentioned this last week, but Samaritans were the first to say Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's kind of a unique phrase in the New Testament. There's only one other time that that exact phrase is used, and that's in one of John's letters. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 14, just to, to get a quick look at it. But he kind of takes it on as his own. So interesting, this man who was along with Jesus during this time, you could say he first really learned uh, this phrase from Samaritans. It says, We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. It's such a clear statement that Jesus didn't come just to save the people of Israel, just to save Jewish people or descendants of Abraham, but he came to make salvation available to everyone. Just like we learned back in chapter 3, verse 17, where it says that God sent the Son into the world that the world might be saved through him. And he was speaking then to Nicodemus, but you didn't say Nicodemus, hear Nicodemus declare, oh, This man is the savior of the world. Now, we don't really hear anything from Nicodemus for quite a while after this. But the Samaritans believed. God transformed their hearts and helped them to understand one of the most glorious truths that there is. They had believed, and God had counted it for them as righteousness, just like what happened to Abraham. After this, of course, Jesus would go on and he would accomplish on the cross what it was that they needed to pay for their sin. What was needed so that they could actually come into possession of the fact of eternal life. But did did Jesus forget them? No. Just like we we ended last time. Let's go to the book of Acts, chapter 8. And again, see how Jesus, through his apostles, followed up with these people. John chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 4, 
going down through verse 8. I'm sorry, did I say John? It's Acts chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. I'm sorry, chapter 8, verses 4 through Are you confused yet? I apparently am still. The numbers are swimming around. So we're in Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. It says, Therefore those who had been scattered from Jerusalem went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Now, it doesn't say that this was the city of Sychar, but it's in that area of Samaria, where the word first took root, where they first believed in Jesus because of that testimony. And now they come in the Holy Spirit performing miracles, showing that the Holy Spirit has actually come, that Jesus truly is the Messiah, and crowds entrust themselves to him. Then the word gets to Jerusalem. They're like, hey, did you hear what's happening up in Samaria? People are believing the gospel in Samaria. And guess what they do? Verse 14, when the, now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Well, Peter and John had been here with Jesus, right? Doing that early reaping, that early helping people to first believe in Jesus. And then it says, they came down, verse 15, and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So the things Jesus said to the woman, right, about coming to him for living water, and that water would spring up into a fountain within you of eternal life. That's the Holy Spirit. Now that part then became true for these Samaritans as well. Jesus didn't just get them to believe in, in him and then leave them. But in fact, he sent back Peter and John, and they did have that the Holy Spirit spring up within them and give them new life and direct them in the life ahead, walking with Jesus. What an amazing God we have. What an exciting and joyful thing it must have been for them to see what the Spirit did on this day with Jesus. And then on that day, also with Jesus, right? And Jesus invites us to get in on that joy and to share that joy with one another as we work together to, to reach out and say, you too can know the Savior of the world. You too can have your sins forgiven. You too can have the gift of eternal life and life that springs up within you and never goes away. What a privilege, huh? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us that great privilege. You, you, you give us the opportunity to both plant and to water and to, to harvest hearts and souls, uh, that we get to be a part of Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost, who came to, to give eternal life to those who would believe in him. Help us to be more, more fully aware of our part in, in what it is you desire us to do. 
please help us to, to be eager to move into that joy, whether we're, we're sowing, and praying, and, or if we're reaping, if we get to be there when someone actually begins to believe and enters into eternal life. Help us to learn with the disciples uh, how to eat the bread that really matters, to do your will. Thank you that you, by your spirit, by the word that you've given us, you've given us all that we need to be able to do that. Help us not to forget that when we might be frightened or indifferent or just not paying attention, that we would be better at bringing you glory in all of this. In Jesus' name I pray.